Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, I was telling a few of our guest services folks, I am ready for the Lord to uh, make it warm or cold. Uh, I am ready for that, uh, and I hope you are too. But uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Parker Richardson, and I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, we are walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, um, turn to Matthew chapter 6. And then as you're turning there, I just want to update you on a few things. Uh, one is that our campus family dinner is tonight. Um, so if you're signed up, great. If you are just hearing about it and want to come and just be a part of the body and fellowship together over um, some tacos, then show up. Uh, there is grace for you if you have not signed up. But just make sure you show up here tonight at 6 and uh, we'd love to feed you dinner and just let you be amongst the body and to, to be encouraged and to fellowship and all those kind of things. Um, let me pray, and then I will... Um, actually, let me read our passage this morning, and then I'll pray, and uh, we'll jump in. So I'm in Matthew chapter 6. Hopefully you have found it. If you will stand, we are going to um, read verses 1 through 4 together. Uh, this is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You can have a seat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and uh, jump in. Lord, uh, I'm just grateful um, to be with your people, um, to gather around your word. Um, God, there is no desire in me and my prayers. There's no desire in us to gather around a man to gather around a personality. God, this is the people of God who want to hear from the word of God. Um, so speak to us now. God, I'm grateful um, that your word is living and active. Um, it doesn't get any more fresh than alive. Um, I don't have to add anything to it. Um, so God, help us to um, orient our lives around it. Um, God, we don't adjust your word um, for our lives. We adjust our lives to your word. So help us to be a people that do that. Um, on a regular basis. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, a few of you might know this. Uh, I spent the last year, up until about December, um, not on staff technically at High Point Carville. I was the young adults pastor um, investing in our 18 to 29-year-olds uh, from both campuses, uh, but I spent most of my time in East Memphis and uh, absolutely loved that year of ministry. Um, it was a blast, and uh, kind of our last hurrah was we went to Cross Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. We had an absolute blast, and uh, one of the best parts of that whole experience for me um, wasn't even anything to do with the conference, as phenomenal as it was. Uh, during the second day, I think, of the conference, uh, me and a few of our young adults were um, at this Mexican place in downtown Louisville, and uh, there's just like six of us there. And one of the guys, um, he actually is a volunteer here. Um, he's an electrician. He's like 22 years old, blue collar, super humble, Jesus-loving guy. Um, he 
looked across the table at me and said, hey, I just want to thank you um, for walking faithfully through the book of Jonah at the house. And we had spent um, a couple months walking through. Jonah's only got four chapters. We were walking through Jonah a verse at a time. And uh, he said that, and he said, because my parents and my grandparents are unbelievers, and uh, he said, the problem is they think that they have a genuine relationship with Jesus, and they, they don't pray, they don't, uh, they don't know what the gospel is, they think that they've earned it with their works, all those kind of things. And uh, he said he was at home for the holidays, this was just after Christmas, and his grandmother you know, in passing in a conversation, essentially said something to the effect of, oh, I love the story of Jonah. I just love, you know, the whale and all those kind of things. And he was able to look at his grandmother, who's not a believer, and say, you know, hey, grandma, it's a phenomenal story. In fact, the whale's only mentioned like twice in two verses. It's really not about the whale. It's really about the gospel. And was able to walk his grandmother through the book of Jonah and show her the gospel, which was incredible for me, not because I did anything, but because um, this is the goal. And I tell you that story because if you're wondering, okay, why in the world are we walking through, you know, three chapters of Matthew, a verse at a time? Why can't we move on to something that's a little more fun, that's a little more energetic, all those kind of things? This is why. Because six months from now, I want you to be able to pick up this book and to talk to your unbelieving relative or your neighbor and to show them the gospel in these chapters. Does that make sense? That's why we're doing it. Um, I want you to be able to understand the confusing parts of the text. If we just did sermon series that will bring people in the doors and all those kind of things that are fun and we do all this, and I'm not against any of those things, uh, but chances are we wouldn't come across confusing parts of scripture very often, would we? We don't really plan for those. Um, so there's a reason that we're doing this. And then also, um, there's just parts of Scripture that are good for us, even though we don't like them, uh, that are good for us to obey, right? They just are. And uh, no one plans a sermon series around those topics. Nobody, I guarantee you, I would put money on it, that nobody in this last week that works at a church said, you know what, let's do a sermon series on submission, right? We can talk about like wives and husbands one week. We can talk about government the next week. Um, you know, we can talk about authority. Like, nobody plans for that. And when you do series, and series are great, but when you, we usually just pick and choose topics that are popular, and we avoid and don't run into passages of Scripture that are hard for us to obey, that are really good for us. So I was telling the worship team this morning, treat this morning like it's just your least favorite vegetable. Um, because as you just um, heard us read together, we're gonna talk about giving to the needy. We're gonna talk about being charitable and being generous and giving to our church and all those kind of things. Um, and I guarantee you, if I talked about money as much as Jesus talked about money, uh, we wouldn't have a congregation, right? Um, it's one of those things that we, you know, strategically, and that's why I love that we're just walking through the text. If you want to know why are we talking about money this morning, because Jesus felt that it was important in his sermon to talk about money pretty early on. That's why. Um, I was meeting with uh, a family at our church, a good brother in Christ, a couple weeks ago, um, just because I knew that we were going to talk about some tough stuff, and it's something that his family had walked through, and it was one of those moments where... Um, conversation got to the point where he just looked at me and said, hey, this is good that we're preaching on this. This is good that we're walking through this. Um, you don't get to skip the hard passages to prep and neither do we. That's the beauty of walking verse by verse through books of the Bible. 
is we're not skipping it. We're, we need to be there, you know? I thought that we've talked about it enough, but guess what? Apparently the Holy Spirit thought otherwise and we're gonna be there. We're gonna sit under the word of God and we're gonna talk about it as a family. And my prayer is that all of us have that attitude. That you know what? We're going to, uh, to embrace God's word. We're gonna orient our lives around it and um, we're gonna walk through it. So um, I do wanna be fair though. Um, a lot of people, you've probably heard that Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. Um, that is like somewhat true. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, Jesus mentions money probably more than anything, but he's not always preaching about money. Um, for example, if you look at Matthew 20, um, Jesus is talking about, it's, it's the parable of the master of the field and Jesus goes and um, hires some people in the morning to work the field and then he goes in the third hour and he hires more people and he goes in the sixth and the ninth. And then even in the 11th hour, like right before the day is over, he hires some more people and then it's time to pay them. So he gathers everybody up and he starts with the people that he hired last and he pays them one denarius, which is the same that he agreed to pay the people in the morning. And obviously the people in the morning are going, what in the world, right? We, should, we deserve like eight if that's how this is gonna go. And Jesus essentially says, this is a parable. He didn't actually happen, but he's, who are you to question my generosity? I'm the master. I can do whatever I, I, I can be as generous as I want with whoever I want. Now, is that a teaching about how we are supposed to handle our money? Is that a teaching for employers? Hey, you can pay your employees, whatever you want. Like that would be a far cry stretch. Does it mention money? Yes. But is Jesus teaching us about money? No. The first seven words of that parable is the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's teaching us about the gospel. He's teaching us about the kingdom, that God's grace isn't fair. It's not, and praise God that it's not. I, I've talked about this often. You and I, we don't want God to be fair with us, do we? We just don't. We do not want God to pay us what our works and our thoughts and our actions have earned for us. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin, the, the payment, what we've earned with our actions is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? That's what we want. So praise God that his grace is not fair, that God could save someone when they're six years old and God could save someone when they have six minutes left to live. And boy, do we praise God for that. So that would be an example where Jesus is mentioning money but he's not actually preaching about how we're supposed to, to handle our money. Does that make sense? So I wanna be fair, and um, yes, 11 out of the 39 parables mention money. They're not all teaching us how to interact with money, but the flip side of that coin is that Jesus does talk about how we are supposed to, to deal with our money a lot, how we're supposed to handle our money, how we're supposed to um, treat our money, how we're supposed to view our money before God, all of those things. So I don't want to, to misrepresent kind of the, the overall um, presence of this in the scriptures. If you think about it in Jesus's day, um, other than um, food and farming and money, that was about the only three things most people had in common in those days. So most of the time that Jesus is using an illustration, he mentions one of those things. He mentions farming or agriculture, he mentions food, and he mentions money. Um, he's not always teaching on money, and we're going to look at, um, he is doing that here, so we're going to talk about it and walk through it together. Um, but I want you to see that. Um, there's also some really sharp warnings in Scripture. In fact, um, Jesus is going to talk about money twice in chapter 6. So you're going to get it today, and then guess what? In a couple weeks after we get through um, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, Easter, you're going to get it again. 
Um, it's not because we planned it that way. It's because Jesus decided to talk about it multiple times. Um, he'll talk about it again down in verse 20, uh, 19 through 24. Um, so we'll get it again. So I just want you to see that though, but let me give you the context of where we've been, um, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Um, let me tell you where we've been. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in chapter five. So you're, um, you've got a chapter of teachings that you have missed if you're just joining us, but that's totally fine. Um, Jesus is all about the heart here. Um, this entire sermon, in fact, is geared at your heart. It is pointed directly at your heart. And he starts with, this is who my people are in heart. And we don't have time to, like I said last week, our summaries as we get further into this are gonna get longer and longer and longer. Um, But Jesus is saying that his followers, who he was preaching this sermon to, are broken. We're poor in spirit, right? We're recognized in our heart that we need God. We need a righteousness that we can't provide, that we can't earn, that we can't work and be good enough to deserve. Um, that we're broken over our sin, that we mourn over it, that we long for God's righteousness. And then he proceeds to go into um, the idea that all of us, um, we need a, a righteousness that is greater than just external morality. The Pharisees had reduced God's law. Jesus tells us that this, this way to follow him is not apart from the law. In fact, he's the fulfillment of the law. He's gonna rightfully interpret the law for us. And he tells us um, that we need way more than just the externals. They've reduced God's law to just not killing each other and not cheating on each other. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm after your heart. It's not good enough that you just wouldn't murder one another. I'm after your hatred. I'm after your envy. I'm after your strife, your jealousy, your rage, all of those things. He's taking these externals that the Pharisees reduced their obedience to, and he's taking it to the heart. And if you want to look, um, he talks about, Um, murder and anger. He talks about lust and adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about keeping our word. Um, He talks about a lot of things in chapter five that we've faithfully walked through. As we turn into chapter six, I want you to see um, that there's a different aim in chapter six. Jesus has been talking about our um, heart's morality in chapter five, right? Here's, here's these things. Um, we need to be moral in heart. We need to be God honoring and pure in heart. We need to not envy, not hate, not lust, all those kind of things. Um, here's those things to avoid in your heart. Now, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take common religious practices in chapter six that we are supposed to do. And he's going to move from morality of heart to motive of our hearts, Here's the things you avoid, morality, in your heart. And now here's the things that as you're doing them, he's going to address the motives of our heart, right? There's just this whole other category. Just when you thought you were good at keeping God's law, but wait, there's more, right? Hey, I'm avoiding all these things. And he's like, yeah, but you're doing all these the wrong way, right? Your motives are are off. So if you look at chapter six, if you've got a Bible in front of you or a screen in front of you, let me just point this out to you as we walk through this. Um, Chapter six, verse one is the thesis statement of the next 18 verses. Chapter six, verse one is the statement that's going to apply to the next three sections um, through verses two through 18. And he talks about, we'll walk through it in just a minute, but he talks about um, practicing your righteousness before other people. And then Jesus in the next Um, verses two through 18, he's gonna take these three common practices that I would argue um, show up in any religion. He talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. He's gonna take these things and he's going to essentially apply them to verse one. 
Here's a way that you are doing this to, to, to try to earn righteousness and practice your righteousness in front of men to be seen by them. But verse one is kind of the thesis of the next three. And if you look, look at verse two, five, and 16. Each of those sections is, is gonna start with when you do this, right? When you give, when you pray, when you fast. And each one of those sections is going to end with your father who sees in secret in verse four, six, and 18. So all of this is connected. And we're gonna take the first kind of slice of this and talk about um, giving this morning. So does that make sense? You see kind of how it's laid out? One is the thesis, and then you've got these three sections that we're gonna walk through um, in the coming weeks. Um, Each one is when you start doing this, and then it ends with your father who sees in secret. Sweet. Verse one, let's walk through it together. Shall we? It says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Now that word beware, um, I won't give you the Greek term just to save you from, you know, my nerdum class. Um, But the word there is a present active imperative. And all that means is it is a continuous action that we are, it's it's an imperative, it's a command but it's something we're supposed to do continuously. So what he's saying here is continuously look out for, watch out for, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, if you walked with us through chapter five, there could be quite the tension here between something that Jesus has already said. And if you're wondering, okay, Parker, is Jesus telling us not to do righteous deeds before other people? Are we not supposed to do good things and righteous things in front of each other? I would say no. If you remember Matthew 5, verse 16, what does Jesus say? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven right? Scripture commands us to do good works in front of each other. In fact, Jesus did this. He did righteous deeds before men. The apostles and the disciples did righteous deeds before men. He commands us in Scripture to do righteous deeds before each other. So where's the tension, right? How do we clear this up? The tension is in our motive, because Jesus is going to preach after and get after the motives of our heart, What does he say in verse one? It's not, you know, beware and stop doing good deeds. He's not saying, hey, anytime you wanna do something good, go run away from a crowd and, you know, give in your closet or pray. You're not allowed to pray in front of other people or anything like that. He's saying this, if your motive is in order to be seen by them, if that's your motive, if that's your goal, is that I'm gonna do this thing so that other people will see me and notice me and praise me and be impressed with me. If that's the motive of your heart, that's what he's getting after. That's what he's preaching against. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order. The purpose of what you're doing is to be seen by other men. It's not out of the goodness of your heart towards your heavenly father. It's to perform in front of people. It's so that people will be impressed. It's so that people will applaud you, they'll wanna be you, they'll respect you, they'll think more highly of you, all of those things. Essentially all of social media, right? Uh, But this is what he's getting after. 
And, you know, we could preach a whole sermon and apply this whole thing, to, and we won't go there this morning, but just think about how much we do this online. Um, so, and let me just say this. So he's not forbidding us to, to practice righteous deeds among each other. In fact, that's entirely what the church is. Um, if you want to know what the church is biblically, the church is a family of believers who have committed to submit their lives to one another and to do life with one another and protect and love and serve one another out of our love and our affection for Jesus Christ to glorify him and honor him is to do righteous deeds among one another so that all of us, so that this community, this family of believers who have committed um, to be a part of each other's lives and to serve one another and care for one another and pray for one another and bear for each other's burdens, it's so that all of us, this local expression of the Big C Church, that you and I, that we will meet each other's needs, that we will pursue holiness together, that we will sanctify one another through accountability, through exhorting one another in the scriptures, through praying over one another, laying hands on one another, all of those things, that we would do these things. We will meet needs among the body. Why? Because with need comes trial, comes temptation, comes doubt, comes people walking away from the faith, that we would meet each other's needs so that this family, that you and I and our children, we would all persevere and be faithful to Christ unto the end. That's the local church. The big C church, is. this is happening in cities and places and homes all throughout the world, but this local expression, that's what we've committed to do, to submit our lives to one another, to know one another. This is a family that we need to get to know one another. That's why we're doing dinner tonight and those kind of things, so that we could fellowship with one another and live life with one another and serve one another so that all of us, that we will persevere and be faithful to Christ until he either comes down for us or he calls us up to him. But we're supposed to do righteous deeds among one another. In fact, we celebrate those. As Matthew 5 says, we give glory to God for those, right? He's getting after our motives here. Um, I see Mackenzie in the room, pick on Mackenzie for a little bit. Um, you guys know that Mackenzie Harris is all about life choices and the life walk. It's coming up in April, all those kind of things. Um, we'll talk about all that. But um, Mackenzie Harris, um, I can't see into her heart, um, but based on her demeanor and based on the fact that she loves moms and dads and babies and life and Jesus all throughout the year and not just every April, um, I can tell that the reason that um, Mackenzie works insanely hard to raise money for life choices um, is not so that you and I will be more impressed with Mackenzie Harris, right? That's not the motive of her heart. And because it's not, what do we do? We see her light shining, we see the good deeds that she's doing, and we give glory to God for her, right? It's a teenager in our midst that's doing something incredible um, to fight for life and the sanctity of human life, to, to fight for moms and dads in crisis pregnancy situations, to fight for the life of babies in the womb. And God's doing a great work in her. And her goal is not so that you and I will go, man, she's impressive, right? It's to give glory to God and say, what an incredible work he's doing through her heart. And as a church, we come around her and support her and all those kind of things. Do you see the difference? One is, as Jesus will say in just a second, to win the praises of men. And the other is because you already have the approval and the praises of God. Two different situations. What Jesus is speaking against here is the motive of our heart to do good works in order to be seen and glorified by men. This is a fear of man issue versus a fear of God issue. This is an approval of man versus approval of God issue. 
He's not concerned with the location of our good deeds. He's concerned with the intention of our hearts when we do those good deeds. And let me just be honest. This was, scribes and Pharisees were insanely guilty of this. But like we've been saying in this series, before we point fingers at the scribes and Pharisees, there is way more Pharisee in me than I want to admit. Way more. And I would venture to say there's way more Pharisee in you than you want to admit. Or is that too honest this morning? There's way more Pharisee in one of your friends, right, than they want to admit. But we do this all the time. We are so guilty of this. In fact, this was a struggle for the scribes and Pharisees. This is, let me just paint a picture of, of where you could be one day if you fall in love with the praises of men. Because we see it all throughout the Gospels. Let me read you one example. This is in John 5. This is Jesus talking. He says this, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, so I've come in the name of God and you don't receive me. But if somebody else comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Right? So concerned with glory from man that they've missed the glory of God. This is where you and I can get if we fall in love with the praises of men, if we live our lives for the approval of other people. John 12 is probably where it it hits hard uh, the most. Um, If you remember, John 10 and 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, like one of his incredible miracles. And in John 12, it's, it's an amazing chapter. I would encourage you to read it just like Tyler read from John this morning. There's so much goodness in the book of John. Um, John 12 is this incredible, incredible chapter. It's Palm Sunday. Lazarus has been raised. Jesus and his, you know, his crew and Lazarus are like coming into town and everybody, you know, Jesus just rode in on a donkey. Everybody wants to see Lazarus and meet Lazarus. You know, you were dead and now you're back. What is that like? Everyone wants to see Jesus, the one who did all of this. And then what's crazy is Jesus starts predicting his own death as all these people start gathering towards him and saying that the hour is coming, the time is here. And he prays, Father, glorify your name. And then what is crazy about John 12 is God speaks audibly. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And then God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And John, who's writing this, says all the people, it, to them, it sounded like thunder roaring. God's voice was so loud. So Jesus speaks, and then God the Father speaks, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And here's what happens. Here's the response. Jesus is encouraging them. I don't want to say begging, but Jesus is charging them and, and pleading with them to, to see him for who he is and believe in him. And this is what it says in verse 42 of John 12. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Devastating. This is where you and I could get There will be a day, one day. I think scripture is very clear about the persecution that is happening all around the world and we are naive to think that it's not coming to a home near you. But there will be a day where we will have to be forced to, and I would argue that it's today, if we wanna truly live a life holy unto the Lord, 
We will have to choose if we want to, to win the approval of man or if we want to, to live out of our approval from God. And this is what could happen. Paul in Galatians, he, he hits it on the head. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not, have, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 10, right? <laughs> There's other ways to please men than to be shipwrecked and beaten and thrown in prison. And Paul's like, hey, if, if I was trying to win the approval of man, I would have gone and done something else. I wouldn't have been a servant of Christ because that's not the route you go if you want to please men. Are we supposed to let our light shine among men and they would see our good works and all? Yes. But scripture's clear that this will come with hostility. So when Jesus says, do righteous deeds before others, he's talking about the motive of our hearts. But I do want you to see too, at the end of verse one, there is a reward. There is a reward. Look at what he says. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven, right? There is a reward coming for our obedience. And Jesus says that if you're, if you're doing good works to be seen by others, to be approved by others, you do not get the Father's reward. And he's gonna tell us what that looks like. But the question is, okay, what's the reward? It is not an earthly reward. Now, can God in his grace give us earthly things? Yes, he can. Can he bless our obedience? Yes. But don't take the scripture as promising you an earthly reward for obedience right? God is free to, to give as he pleases. He can do that. But this is not prescribing that for every good deed you do, God's going to give you a good reward on this earth. How do I know what he's referring to here? Look down at the next section. Look at verse 19. He contrasts, and we'll get to it when we walk through this, treasures on earth versus what? Treasures in heaven. So what he's doing, if you're following kind of the layout of, of this sermon, is beware when you do these three things, Practice these, these three common good deeds that you don't do them to be seen by others. Why? Because when you do that, if that's your motive, you will not get the Father's reward. And so he's gonna walk through those three things and then in verse 19, he's gonna say, don't live for the earthly treasure. Live for the heavenly treasure. Live for the heavenly reward. That's what he's talking about here. That you and I would live for the heavenly reward. That you and I... I'll talk about the reward because he, he talks more about it. I'm just gonna stop there because we need to move on to verse two. Um, but I'll finish that thought, I promise. So chap, uh, verse one is a stern warning for us. Presently, actively, continuously beware of us doing good deeds so that other people will see us. And man, right? There is a fine line between obedience to glorify God and vanity, to glorify ourselves, right? I struggle with that. If I'm being candid, Tyler and I talk about this often. I struggle at that sitting on the front row during worship because one minute I can be lifting my hands because of what God has done for me and the next I can be lifting my hands because I know you're behind me. If I'm being honest, it's a, there is a quick slope between Glory of God and the vanity and the approval of man. And we slip over it so often, don't we? So what does he say? Verse two, thus, so as a result of this, therefore, in light of this warning, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So notice, he says, therefore, in light of this warning, here's how I want you to give. Notice he doesn't say, if you give. This is not a warning or this kind of, you know, piece of advice. Hey, if you ever get around to being generous and to giving, keep this in mind. No, when you give. Jesus was assuming that his disciples were generous and were giving regularly. And the the way this is constructed in the Greek is not a, you know, just in case you do this, it's a whenever, it's an every time you do this. Consistency. Whenever you give, do it this way. Every time you give, do it this way. And we'll talk about when you give in a little bit. But then he says, uh, when you give to the needy. Now in the Greek, um, the word in the needy isn't in there. Um, and I'll tell you kind of how we got to that. It's, it's a good interpretation and a good translation of this. Um, but in the Greek, it says when you practice or when you do almsgiving or charitable giving, and rightfully so, that means, you know, donating to the needy. Um, and, and the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, um, you could do that to someone if you saw someone needing like uh, Peter does at the person who's you know, at the temple gate, he's crippled, he's sitting there. Um, or that could be through the temple. You could give to the temple and the temple, um, the priests and those folks would take care of the needy in the city through the almsgiving and the charitable giving to the temple. What he's talking about here, when you practice almsgiving, when you practice charitable giving, um, he says, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now, I don't know, if there was a practice in the first century, commentators went back and forth about this, if there were actually trumpets being blown um, as these people were giving, right? Like, hey, let's, let's draw. Needless to say, what Jesus is talking about here, I think he could be using more hyperbole, which this sermon is filled with hyperbole, which is just, you know, exaggerated, um, big action to communicate a point, right? If your right arm, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If you're I causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? Don't be like these hypocrites who draw all this attention to themselves, who are blowing trumpets when they give to the needy so that everybody will see them. Um, it's kind of like in Luke um, 21, the, the, if you remember the widow's mite story where Jesus is watching people come and, and put money into the temple treasury. And it was almost like the scribes and the Pharisees took their big amounts and like got them in quarters and just, you know, slowly dumped them in so that everyone could hear how much they give. And then you've got this widow who shows up with um, these two copper coins and drops them in. And Jesus says, truly, she's given more than everybody else because she gave out of her poverty. She gave sacrificially. Um, It was a humble act. It was a generous act. It was a sacrificial act, not to be seen by others, not to draw attention to herself, but just to humbly and quietly donate out of her poverty. It's essentially what Jesus is getting at. But sound no trumpet before you. Don't draw attention to you. Uh, Spurgeon says to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of a hypocrite. And for us to do, I would say, to go and serve and volunteer, to stand with a rake in one hand and a cell phone in another hand, making sure everybody sees I'm getting this, is the posture of a hypocrite, right? If we want to be honest, can we do that this morning? I'm guilty of this. So please don't hear me preaching at you. And I'm, I'm, I'm going for all of our hearts here this morning. And so is Jesus in this sermon, as we're going to see that he gets to. But boy, I mean, like, if you really think about this, life gets complicated, doesn't it? Like, 
when people tag you on social media for your birthday, it's like, do I share this so that I, other people see that people like me? Like, this, this gets complicated really quickly, doesn't it? Boy, is the slope slippery for us to live for the praises of men. And one of the things I want you to see uh, in the word hypocrite, um, kind of give you an etymology of the word hypocrite. Um, the word hypocrite in the Greek is hypocriti. Now, it's, it's a combination of two words. The prefix hupo just means under, and then kriti, um, krinomai is kind of the, the base verb, um, and it means to speak out from under. Um, it means to speak out or to answer back. So if you put it together, hypocrite means to speak out from under. And uh, what's crazy about this is this was actually a term um, in the biblical days of performers and actors. Um, so what they would do is they, they called these people, this, this term came from, from playwrights, from acting, from actors, um, because back then uh, they didn't have TV where you could zoom in on people's facial expressions. Back then, if you were acting, uh, you had to put on a mask. And we've got you know, a creepy picture of what those used to look like. Um, that might be up there. There it is, right? Um, sorry if you've seen the movie The Purge and this brings back memories, but um, they would wear a mask, right? So if, if it was a happy scene, you would put up the happy mask. If it was a sad scene, you would put up the sad mask because there was no high-def cameras. You weren't watching really closely. So you had to wear these different masks to give these facial expressions. So this is where the term came from because you would speak out from under the mask. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you are giving to the needy, when you're doing charitable things, when you're being generous to our church, when you're being generous to others, and you're doing it so that other people will see you, you are performing. You are just like an actor. You are speaking out from under the mask, right? The mask says that I'm, I want, you know, I love God. I want um, his approval alone, but you're speaking out from under that mask. And in fact, those masks were called facades, which is where we derive the word fake, right? So if you want to think about this very hard, Jesus is saying, hey, you're being fake when you give. Your fake religion is showing when you are doing good deeds to be seen and applauded by others, to win the approval of men. You're speaking out from under the mask, the mask that says, I love Jesus, all those things, but really I just love the praises of men. I just want man's approval. Tough to walk through, right? Vegetables, hard week to, to walk through, um, but we'll keep going. And notice that he says this, verse two, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, Right? So you've got God's reward and man's reward. And Jesus says that when you and I, when we do things, when we give, when we're generous to win the approval of others, you will get a reward. In fact, it's the very reward you are seeking. Here for a minute and gone the next. Man's approval. God will give you what you are wanting. If you're being generous and doing good deeds to win man's approval, you're going to win man's approval. And Jesus is careful to tell us, and that's all you're going to get. No heavenly reward awaits. In fact, the Greek word there means paid in full. That in the moment, you get exactly what you were wanting, and that is it. 
You get the fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow, praises of men. They love you today, they hate you tomorrow, right? They're happy with you today, they're upset with you tomorrow. You get exactly what you were looking for in that moment. If the motive behind your your generosity, your good deeds is so that other people will be impressed with you, they'll be impressed with you, and that's all you get. That's what he's saying here. It will be presently paid in full. And here's the question that we need to ask this morning. Are we okay with that? Because I think some of us in our heart of hearts, in the moment when we're desperate for the praises of men, if we're honest, we'd say, yeah, I'm okay with that, right? At the end of the day, I just want people to, to be impressed with me. Are we okay with that reward? If I'm being honest, there's moments in my life where it's like, yeah, And let me just say this. If you want the telltale sign that you've forgotten the gospel, catch yourself when you're trying to win other people's approval. Jesus is telling us that's the telltale sign that you've forgotten that you already are approved in Christ. When you're going through your day trying to win the praises of men, you've already forgotten the gospel. It's the flag that raises. It's the, 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 the dead giveaway that you've forgotten the gospel is you are trying to win people's praises trying to let people be impressed with you. And then Jesus takes it a step further. Verse three, this is four verses, y'all. But when you give the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now the you here is emphatic. So he's saying the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites, those that are fake, they give this way. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now this is hyperbole by far, right? Our, our, our bodies don't work that way. You can't do something with your left hand or with your right hand and your left hand's like, oh, I didn't know that was going, like our, our brains don't work that way. But what Jesus is getting at here is he's, he's taking it a step further that when you and I, when we give, when we're generous, we're not doing it. The motive of our heart, the goal of our heart isn't just to, to you know, we avoid winning or trying to earn man's approval, It's that we don't even try to win our own approval, right? My heart is so sinful and so wicked that even when you're not around, I can do generous things, not to impress you, to impress myself, to be proud at myself, right? I don't even need you around to sin. I can do good things and be generous to the point where I'm proud of myself. Man, you know, this world just needs more people like me in it that are generous, right? I just wish more people would get it like I get it. I just wish more people would be as generous as I am. Man, I'm proud that I did that today. You know what? They're glad that I showed up today, right? All those kind of things. He's saying we're not, like, it's not even that the motives of our heart are are to win the praises of men. We need to to give in such a way that we're not even trying to win our own approval. We're not even trying to, to cause ourselves to be proud of what we've done. This is where we get the term, blow our own trumpets, right? I don't even need the scribes and the Pharisees to blow a trumpet around when I give. I can blow my own. Here I go. Man, I'm awesome. You're glad that I'm alive today because I can bless you, right? I've received my reward, being impressed with myself, and that's all I get. Crazy to think about. There is a fine line between acts of righteousness and acts of vanity, and we cross it all the time. 
all the time. The sins of our hearts are so subtle that we could go out of our way to make sure that no one else sees our generous deeds and we could still do it with the wrong motive because we're trying to be proud of ourselves, trying to commend ourselves. Christian giving is meant to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not self-congratulation. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That our generous deeds would be self-sacrificial, that they would be self-forgetful, and they would not be self-congratulatory. Here I go, man, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a good Christian, right? God is so proud of me right now. He's glad I'm on his team. So we don't give so that others will clap, and we don't give so our left hand will clap at what our right hand is doing. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And boy, do we mess this up all the time. Then he says this. Here comes the good news, right? Verse four. He says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that's the good news, that you and I, that we give in a way that is sincere and motive, that the only reward we want is to be, is the joy of being used by our Father, used to impact his kingdom, right? It's not to win his approval because we already have it in Christ. In fact, I think Jesus's language was correct when he says, practice your righteousness. He doesn't say go out and earn your righteousness, that we give from our righteousness that's given to us in Christ. Not to try to earn it. That was what's wrong with the Pharisees. Is they were giving to earn righteousness. And the gospel says we give because we're righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but because we've been freely made righteous. That's why we give. That's why we're generous. We don't give to earn God's approval. We give because even if we didn't give, we already have it in the gospel. That's why we give. That's why we're generous. Because it doesn't matter what we do. God is generous with his grace. And I don't have to earn it. I don't have to deserve it. There's a reason why. All throughout the scripture, salvation is depicted as a gift. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your sin. God's made you alive. This is a free gift of God. I totally botched that reference, but it's in Ephesians 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God. There it is. Um, God can see the hidden desires of our heart. He sees all of our motives. He sees our goal. He sees the aim and why we do things. And the good news is that you and I, we don't have to work or earn or give or to impress to try to win anybody's approval. And that's the goodness of the gospel. When you and I, when we finally realize that we have all the approval we ever need in Christ, you are freed up to where you don't have to seek other people's approval. You don't have to try to win their righteousness. You already have it. You're finally free to give from pure motive because you have all the righteousness that you need. You have it all. So before we end, um, I do wanna do this, um, not a part of this text, um, but I wanna give you kind of a, a biblical theology of giving, um, because we're talking about being generous, we're talking about giving, this means giving to one another, this means giving to the needy, this also means giving to our church. 
Um, I wanna give you a biblical theology of giving because Jesus says, when you give, not if you give, not if you think about it, not annually, regularly, when you give. Jesus was assuming that they were giving. And if you think about, let me just take you back to the Old Testament for a minute. Um, You've probably heard the word tithe, right? The tithe is a tenth. Um, That's what the word means. It means one-tenth. It shows up in all the way back in Genesis uh, when Abraham gives a tenth. Um, But here's what I want you to see. Um, The tenth, this tithe, um, is not... Actually, let me take you through the biblical theology, and then I'll I'll tell you what I'm going to say. This tenth is taught in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, right? To give a tenth of our income, to give a tenth of the wealth. Um, But if you think about it, Israel in the Old Testament was a nation. Um, It was a nation that ethnically and nationally was in a covenant with God, right? So they have a, as a nation, as a whole, they were in covenant with God, and God was their leader, right? They were a theocracy, that God determined how the people were gonna live. He was their leader, he was their emperor, he was their governor, he was their king, all of those things, right? And the, the tenth was essentially the taxation system of the day, right? If this is the nation of Israel, this is how they're going to, to, to raise funds and to take care of things, take care of one another. Um, that's what the tithe was for. Um, it was the tax system. The way God set up Israel, they had 12 tribes and one of the tribes was the Levites and they were the priests and the people that helped the priests and the Levites didn't own any land. And the way that God would take care of the priests and take care of uh, the Levites, those that would help the priests was they would get, everybody would give a 10th. And it wasn't just money. If you earned, you know, you would give a 10th. If, if your valuables, if your assets were oil, you would give oil. If it was grain, you would give grain. If it was fruit, you would give fruit, right? But everybody gave a 10th of what they earned. And that was the taxation system. However, the, tenth, the, the tithe was one-tenth of what everyone earned. Um, then you had a second tithe every year, which would fund the national feast and the temple events of Israel. So all of the feasts that we see Jesus be a part of in the New Testament and the Gospels, they would take a second tenth from everyone. Everyone in Israel would give another tenth to cover those feasts. Then once every three years, there was a third tenth that was taken, which was a poor tax. And when the courts and the priests, they would take this money and they would take care and divvy it up from the poor. Um, so if you average those tenths, right? Because one was every year, one was every two years, one was every three years. If you average those tenths, the tithe of the Old Testament was at minimum about 20%. And here's what's crazier about that. And I'm not, please hear me, I'm not like, leading this to, you know, say you all owe me 20% of your income. So just know that that's not coming. But I want you to see this. If you average those tenths, it ends up being about 20%. But in addition to that, there was a temple tax. We see Jesus pay that in the New Testament. He pays it in a very unique way where he takes it out of the mouth of a fish because he's Jesus and he can do that. Um, But then there were taxes that we were supposed to give to Rome. The Israelites would pay their taxes to Rome. This is why they hated people like Matthew who betrayed the Jews and would go and collect taxes for Rome. So they've got these three different tents that happen three different years. One of them's every year and there's a temple tax and there's taxes to Rome. And then a part of God's law was that you couldn't harvest all of your crops. You had to leave some in the corners. You had to leave some on the edges for the poor to come and glean from you, which is crazy to think about. And then there were, 
Levitical rules where if you're harvesting and you drop part of your crops, you can't pick it up. You leave it there for the poor to come by and pick up. So when you factor in all of that, on an annual basis, the Israelites had to give about 25 to 30% of their income. That was their tithe, right? Anybody want to sign up for that this morning? That was what they were giving on an annual basis on average, anywhere from 25 to 30%, which is crazy to think about. And this is why, and let me just say this, um, the New Testament does not prescribe that you and I are required or mandated to tithe. It doesn't. In fact, the New Testament standard, which I'll get to, is greater than that, but it's different than that. We are not in an ethnic national covenant with God where we have to keep up our end of the bargain and then God keeps up his. That was the the arrangement with Israel, right? You do this, I'll do this. We're in a new covenant, which praise God, the Hebrew says, is far greater than the old covenant that's built on a greater person and has greater promises. But you and I, we are not mandated to tithe. Now, just like the Sabbath, you and I aren't mandated to take a 24-hour span every week and do absolutely nothing. Jesus Christ was the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So you and I, we're not in sin if you don't just stop everything that you're doing every week. But here's what it wants you to see. It is a good principle to live by, right? It's, it's not a requirement anymore, but it is a good rhythm that God himself adhered to when he created the world, right? Rest for a day, work for six. And I would argue if you don't keep the rhythm, then you will break and you will burn out and you will grow weary. Is it a requirement? No, but is it a rhythm established by God? Yes. I would argue that the tithe is the same way. Is it mandated? No. Is it a good principle to put in place? Yes, especially based on what I'm about to show you is the New Testament command to give. But I do wanna guard you from this. Malachi 3, and I love you enough to tell you this. Malachi 3, anybody's teaching on giving today, they go to Malachi 3, right? Let me read it to you. Here's what it says. Verse eight, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out or pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. How many of you have heard a giving message on that passage, right? Hopefully not a lot of you. I can get ahead of the game. This is being taught in churches all around the country as if it's still valid for you and me. This was spoken by God to ethnic Israel who was literally in a national covenant relationship with God. And how were they robbing him? They weren't bringing their grain into the storehouse. They weren't keeping up their end of the covenant. They weren't doing it. So what does God say? Test me in this. Take me at my word. Obey your end of the covenant and I will pour out a blessing on you. I will make sure that you have a harvest next year, right? I will provide for you. I will make sure your crops grow. I will send the rain. I will do all of those things. The storehouse is not the church as much as preachers want it to be. This command 
that you're robbing God, it's, 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 it's old covenant. It's been fulfilled. In fact, here's the goodness of the gospel is that Israel never did this. They never took God at his word and brought the grain back to the storehouse. Malachi ends in the next chapter. They don't do it. And here's the goodness of the gospel is that Israel could never keep their end of the covenant. And the good news of the gospel is God sent his own son who upheld their end of the covenant and his so that you and I could experience the new covenant. How did God open up the heavens and pour out a blessing so that you and I will never have need? Through Jesus. And how hypocritical and how heretical is it for us to preach this today? Like, hey, if you just put some money in the black boxes on your way out, God's gonna open up the heavens and bless you. If that was happening, wouldn't we have heard about it by now? And if God said it would be true, wouldn't it happen to all of us? He's not promising or prescribing in this Old Testament situation that you and I, when you give, that God's gonna open up the heavens. Why? Because he's already done it. He's given us Christ. He's opened up the heavens. He sent down Jesus so that you and I, we don't have any need anymore. If we have Christ, he is all we need. Second Corinthians, having nothing yet possessing everything if we have Christ. So don't allow someone to preach this text to you and tell you to test God. Now, can God in his grace reward your obedience and give you good things? Yes, but do not allow someone to, to say that this text is promising and prescribing that God's gonna do that for you. I could give today and get cancer tomorrow. And God is just as good and just as loving and just as kind to me. Why? Because he's given me Christ and cancer can't take that away from me. Does that make sense? This is not a bait and switch kind of thing. So let me give you New Testament standard of giving. Is that cool? Last thing, two minutes on the clock, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter eight. I want you to see this and then I'll pray and we'll wrap up. <clears throat> We're just gonna look at the first few verses. <clears throat> Um, if you've got it on your tablet, make sure you're looking at it. If you've got it in your Bible, um, it says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, right? Grace of God that's been given in the midst of a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave as themselves, first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he is, as he has started, so he should com complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of, <clears throat> of others that your love also is genuine. And then he says this in verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The New Testament standard of giving is based on God's grace. It is grace-motivated giving. There's not an amount you can see in this text. There's not a percentage. 
Is 10 a good percentage based on these principles here that we would give in the midst of trials, that we would be abundantly generous as this church in Macedonia was, that we would be willingly, right? We're begging to participate in this, that we would be willingly sacrificial, that we would be devoted to the work of the Lord and that we would be sincere, right? And then in chapter nine, Paul says, each one of you should give whatever you've decided decided in your heart to give and give it cheerfully based on God's grace. So it needs to be regardless of trial, abundantly generous, willfully sacrificial, devoted to the work of the Lord and whatever you can do sincerely and cheerfully based on God's grace in your life. And I would argue, as the writer of Hebrews says, that this new covenant we get to experience is a better covenant with better promises that it looks something around that 10%. And that's my opinion, right? I'm not using scripture to say that. But that's what Jesus commands of us, that based on his grace, that you and I would be generous, not for anyone else's approval, but because we have God's approval. You and I don't have to go out and do enough. We don't have to earn enough. We don't have to give enough for God to love us. We give because he loves us. We give because of his grace in our lives. God's been generous with his grace. He's poured out our grace. So in response, we're generous to the people around us and generous to him by the way that we love others. Does that make sense? I belabored the point enough. Let's pray together. Lord, God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for that sweet dose of vegetables this morning. Um, Father, I pray for our church. Um, We have so many families that give and God, as we are more committed now than we've ever been um, to make this a family of believers who serve one another and do life with one another and we take money and we use it to meet the needs of this body, to serve and to, to create groups and programs and studies where people get to grow in their holiness and grow in their knowledge of you. God, that our church, myself included, God, that we would carry our weight as part of this family. God, help us to be generous, not to win anyone's approval. God, we are free from the need to win someone else's approval because we already are fully approved in you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.